good evening. Oh, we have to chance before we can talk. We have to run. I mean, before you can run, you have to chant. I like that. Guys, remind me to remove the buzzing sound after the chanting. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Manjushri. Please accomplish this. Hey, good evening and welcome. How's everybody doing? How's one of you doing? Or every one of you. <laughs> the reading okay so far? Probably pretty boring, right? I like when there's more Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Yeah, you see. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, well, this class was a total dose of him, right? Yeah, what a treat. Uh, I have to apologize, but going forward it's going to be a little bit more of other things so there'll still be lots of him and uh, for starters tonight we'll start with uh, starting out on the starting point where we start um, let's see so I'm gonna look, look at the uh, cover page of the package which once again, I forgot to number, paginate. My apologies. Very bad. Oh, did I paginate? No. First two pages were paginated. Yeah. One of these days, it's only been 16 years of doing this. Uh, tonight we talk about uh, the accomplishment of shamatha and its benefits. What be what are your benefits? Derek, uh, the buzzing is still going on. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, what are the uh, what? Are, what's the payback for accomplishing shamatha? Do you get uh, retirement benefits like a four hundred one k, maybe a match, something like that, or maybe just a lighter? instead of a match. Um, and then the transition from Shamatha to Vipassana in the world of Trungpa Rinpoche, which is something that uh, we'll, we'll go over some of these uh, hot topics that Jamgokancho Rinpoche and the tradition doesn't get into the nuances of like, how do you accomplish Shamatha? How do you deal with the, the incessantly uh, active monkey mind? 
Um, you know, the, the traditional texts are very cut and dried as if like, you know, what's the problem? Just, you know, you do this and you notice the uh, obstacles and you apply the antidotes and it's a beautiful thing, you know, and then you achieve the stages and everybody's happy and they, and, uh, they live happily ever after. And obviously, as we all know, that's totally not the story. And Trungpa Rinpoche's brilliance was his ability to map out and uh, explain and describe and instruct to us what are the, the actual stages that you go through experientially and struggling with uh, gaining some competence in shamatha. And uh, secondly, how do you transition from shamatha to vipassana, which is not really described that well in, in uh, the traditional texts. Again, it's more like, okay, so now that you've accomplished shamatha, now you do vipassana and you do this. <laughs> So uh, let's see. And there's a lot of material and it's worth going through it sort of slowly. And uh, so if we don't make it through tonight, forgive me. And we'll uh, repeat it and we'll come back to it next week. And I needed to prepare one thing. Hold on a second. Yes, I hear you. I could have sworn I sent some handouts tonight, right? I'm in the wrong class. Here we are. No wonder. Sorry, my uh, PDF viewer is malfunctioning. Let's try that again. Okay. Um, you guys see the screen? My yeah. screen? Cool. Okay, so... Uh, first, we have the um, the end of the Shamatha chapter from uh, Jomkong Kongshul. And let's see, I'm going to do that. Hold on. Yes. There was an error. Okay. Okay. That's fine. 
shamatha, the conclusion. Exciting buildup, and here's the denouement. We've all been waiting for the measure of accomplishment of shamatha and its benefits, the way it's accomplished, and the signs of correct mental engagement. Shamatha is accomplished when suppleness is brought to perfection. You guys probably thought, you know, the, the normal thinking on shamatha, complete shamatha is like complete, utter stillness of mind and precision. And instead, it's like this physical experience, this, uh, this um, non-mental experience of, of uh, what they call suppleness. And the term in Tibetan is Xinjiang. And I say that because Trungpa Rinpoche used that term many times. And he talked about Xinjiang a lot. And he translated it as synchronizing mind and body. And uh, stupidly, I forgot to get an excerpt where he talks about Xinjiang. So I'll do that for next week if I, rem if, uh, I can remember. And, uh, but it turns out that Xinjiang is the key f factor that uh, indicates the culmination of shamatha. And we'll see that it also indicates the culmination of Vipassana when we get there. And let's see what the suppleness is according to the traditional presentation. In addition to suppleness, the experiences of uh, bliss, clarity, and no concepts of designations as if merged with space. And so we talked a little bit about this last week. We had Rinpoche's presentation on the, what he called the nyams, temporary experiences. And he had two sets of them. He had the five, which mapped out the progression of shamatha from uh, waterfall through to um, a wide open ocean. And then uh, I think he shifted to a mountain, which is a little unusual. And, uh, and then he talked about the three experiences of bliss, clarity, and, and non-thought. And he sort of presented them as major obstacles that you don't want to get caught in. And uh, that's a little bit different than the tradition, the way the tradition presents these three qualities. They do present them in a cautionary ma uh, manner, but they are very much signs of the accomplishment of the practice of shamatha. And um, why do these signs indicate the accomplishment of shamatha is uh, a good question. It's like, what's going on? So basically in shamatha, if you know your Abhidharma, we're uh, progressing through the different levels of consciousness, through the different levels of mind. And uh, more simplistically speaking, or experientially speaking, we're sinking down from the discursiveness that occurs and is prevalent or maybe all pervasive on the surface of mind uh, for uh, the so-called normal human human being preoccupied with this and that. Our minds are constantly jumping around. We call that traditionally the monkey mind, the mind that jumps around constantly like a mon monkey. And that's the, the five consciousnesses along with the sixth consciousness, which is the integrative um, a function of mental cognitive faculty, the sixth consciousness. And then in, uh, 
in some traditions of presenting the mind they leave it at that they say there's the six consciousnesses and that's all there is and in, in the uh, traditions of the Mahayana a progression of the view or an understanding of Abhidharma and mind in the Mahayana tradition which uh, later gets called the Yogacara for some reason but it's a sort of fundamental aspect of the Yogacara I'm sorry of the Mahayana is <clears throat> this idea of there being uh, eight consciousnesses and uh, there being this idea of a sort of storehouse or base level of consciousness that is the fundamental quality of awareness without uh, necessarily content but just like pure awareness but it's still diluted it's still um, an, uh, an experience within the realm of samsara within uh, uh, within the world of ego, controlled by ego. And the, the aspects of that awareness are bliss, clarity, and non-thought of the Aliya Vijnana. And so here we rest in the Aliya Vijnana with Shamatha. When we accomplish Shamatha, we're resting in the Aliya Vijnana. And we have access to the to the uh, the qualities of the Aliya Vijnana and the depth of uh, experience of the Aliya Vishnana in terms of the intensity or or maybe clarity and purity of perception and ability to recall to remember things ability to understand things clarity of mind basic uh, mental functioning becomes very proficient in shamatha <coughs> Um, we experience these three qualities as if merged with space. So um, we've we've gone on this trajectory of uh, losing the very clunky version of duality of self and object, mind and object, or subject and object, and uh, the sense of the object being separate from the perceiver has. Uh, uh, lifted a little bit as a very uh, solid and definite experience and there's a, a union with the object and uh, when there's a union with the object gradually that object expands and fills all of space and so we experience this feeling of being uh, melted into space expanded into space merged with space and this is a very um, uh, common or very let's say very important traditional analogy for mind of shamatha and for the mind in general that the mind is like space and particularly used in the mahamudra tradition the analogy of mind being like space and the benefit of this is that it makes the obstacles that arise um, pale in comparison to the space and so it's said to be the the uh, secret um, antidote is to understand the space quality of mind and so this begins 
when we're meditating as a sort of uh, feeling that there's something behind us, hovering over us. You see Rinpoche talking about that later, that there's this sense of there being this larger envelope of, of being or presence around us. Andrew. Just to clarify, space is like an environmental feeling, right? It's not like um, like outer space, you know what I mean? Like stars and moon. Yes, yes, yes. Space is the the uh, the absence of objects. Right. I figured as much, but I felt like it was a good time to clarify. Yeah, that is. That is. Yeah, we're not <laughs> talking about the cosmos. We're not talking yeah. about astronomy. Uh, we're talking about uh, the gap between the physical objects and also as we'll see later, if I can get there, the gaps between the contents of mind as well. So if one has accomplished the fourth mental engagement, and this was one of the schemes that I didn't go into in depth last week, but uh, it's basically this, this way of mapping the trajectory of shamatha. Uh, we saw the, the nine stages, we saw the obstacles and antidotes, and we saw the six powers, but the four mental engagements are going from initially where we're barely able to keep our mind on the object at all, and then with, with uh, great effort, we're able to keep our mind on the object as the second stage of mental engagement. And then the third stage of mental engagement is where the mind... Uh, uh, stays to the object in an effortless manner. And then the fourth stage is where the mind is spontaneously um, aligned with the object. There's, there's no effort or, or non-effort. And that's another way of mapping the completion of shamatha. Uh, so we, even if we've accomplished that and the, men, and the ninth mental abiding, the ninth level of calm abiding or shamatha, if one has not also attained suppleness of body and mind, it's not perfect shamatha. And the author, John Kongshul, quotes the uh, most famous text on meditation in the Mahayana tradition. Uh, thank you for reminding me to open up my screen there. Um, the Sutra Unraveling the Thought, the eighth chapter of that has a uh, presentation of meditation. Oh, Bhagavan, from the moment a Bodhisattva turns his mind, inwardly focusing on mind, until he attains a suppleness of body-mind, what is this mental engagement called? So you see here, uh, there's a Bodhisattva, and it turns out to be Maitreya that's talking to the Buddha. And Maitreya says, when we practice meditation and we turn in our mind inward and focus on our mind. So already he's like giving away the secret is that we're not really focusing on a pebble or a stick or an uh, outer image or the breath or the posture or space. We're focusing on the mind ultimately. And he says, until you attain suppleness, what do you call it? And uh, the Buddha says, uh, Maitreya, this is not shamatha, but should be known as, and he, he, he gives this cryptic answer, mental factor, but he basically says, it's a similitude. It's not the real thing. It's not the, the Coca-Cola. It's just a, a, an offshoot. It's like Dr. Pepper or something, maybe. And then he quotes another sutra. From familiarity comes uh, shamatha. I'm sorry, a compilation of sutras by Maitreya. 
from familiarity with shamatha become uh, comes non-application. And so if you remember your obstacles and antidotes, uh, um, the last one is not applying the technique when you don't need to because you're spontaneously uh, in a state of familiarity or equanimity. So from that, uh, from, sh from familiarity comes the stage of non-application and from this comes the attainment of suppleness. Mental engagement in this context is shamatha. In short, shamatha is explained as being suppleness, which is the workability of body and mind. And until that is attained, samadhi is not actual shamatha, but is included in the levels of the desire realm. He's saying it's a lower experience and is, is known as the one-pointedness of that mind, of the desire realm, and not true shamatha. So, what is that suppleness? It is that which dispels all hindrances to workability of body and mind, since it breaks the continuity of physical and mental rigidity. Now, many of us, as, I, as we get older, have stiffness in our body. And maybe we have stiffness in our mind, too. And uh, it seems to be saying that if you practice a lot of shamatha, it will take care of your arthritis, in case you're looking for a cure to that, like I am. So that's why I practice. We all need a reason to practice. Uh, physical and mental rigidity refers to the inability to use body and mind for whatever virtuous purposes one wishes, and the remedy is suppleness, whether being free from rigidity, completely workable, and employed in virtue, synchronizing mind and body in the sense of synchronizing our intention of benefiting others with our ability to carry out that intention. If one exerts oneself to remove the affliction of the obstructing physical rigidity, uh, and, and maybe we're not talking about, you know, the stiffness of arthritis, but maybe we're talking about like a physical uptightness where we have like an inherent, many of us, I should speak for myself, I have like an inherent physical sense of like my physical space and my body. And, uh, you know, if I get, if you come too close to me on the subway or if you bump into me, you know, I feel offended. You've, you've touched my body, you've hurt, you know, bumped, you know, so we all have this sense of physical, of ownership of our physical being, which creates this, this physical rigidity. And we certainly, I certainly have a, a mental rigidity of thinking things should be a certain way and so forth. Um, so we have a certain heaviness that, that attitude creates a certain heaviness um, which we then become free from when this suppleness this perfection of shamatha occurs and the body feels light as if made of cotton wool and you may get glimpses of this as you do intense practice like in retreats weak tones or dotons where the body feels like uh, it's not doesn't feel like it as encumbering as it usually does there's like less um, attention that you need to give to it. Uh, that's the workability of body. And similar, if one makes effort to remove the affliction of mental rigidity, one becomes free from the inability to take joy in correct meditation and one can concentrate without hindrance, which is workability of mind. One becomes free from the inability to take joy in correct meditation. So in other words, we take joy in meditation by removing mental rigidity 
our um, our inherent mental uptightness about constantly like wondering what's going on, what should I be doing, what's in it for me, and how are other people thinking about me, and so forth. Uh, it's all about me. That begins to dissolve. And instead we begin to experience the sense of enjoyment of non-preoccupation mentally. And then we're able to uh, focus our mind spontaneously, which is workability. This is sort of neat. Mental arises first, and there's a particular flow of prana throughout the body. The winds, the natural energies of the body begin to flow in an in a unimpeded way, causing the overcoming of physical rigidity and the attainment of physical suppleness. Certainly yoga doesn't hurt. Tai Chi, things like that. And uh, this is the explanation that has given, and uh, this should be italicized as a text, the level of heroes by Asanga. This is a particularly, an extremely pleasant inner physical tactile sensation. I don't know why he has to say it's not a mental factor, but anyway, it's a pleasant inner physical tactile sensation. So in terms of bliss, uh, clarity and non-thought this would be along the lines of bliss as to the manner of development of suppleness it is explained in that text as follows first there's a subtle experience of suppleness arises difficult to recognize so first there's like an experience of a, a relaxation that pervades the body and relaxation i think is the key it's really the key relaxing the normal uh, alertness uh, uh, physical alertness, sort of like physical force field that we have around our bodies. Um, and then a more obvious one, which is easier to recognize after this great bliss and joy pervade them. And after we're, at that point, one feels very confident due to the joy. And by continuing to meditate without attachment to the joy, the key part of dealing with those three qualities of bliss, clarity, and non-thought, it's non-attachment, eventually shadow-like suppleness will arise by the power of which one attains shamatha. This term shadow-like, you see Trump Rinpoche use it a couple of times in the readings. This idea that there's this sort of larger presence that we become aware of that sort of haunts us. It's a very key part of the, the progression. Having perfected this suppleness, the measure of accomplishment is that one abides free from laxity and agitation, the two major obstacles, and uh, unhindered by inner and outer distractions, interestingly separate, different from these, and the concentration be, be, uh, becomes naturally stable and clear. The attainment of this mental engagement results in the attainment of a lesser level of blah, 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 and uh, you, all sorts of benefits and bells and whistles. Uh, let's see, you can rest in equipose. Uh, it, uh, the meditation comes very quickly and the obstructions dissolve. And uh, after that, you have a, a particular suppleness of body and mind. Where does the... So, Derek, does that yeah. mean if my feet fall asleep, I have not yet achieved true shamatha? <laughs> <laughs> that may be an indication, yes. That may be an indication. Uh, 
So I thought it was here, but um, it's not. So I'm going to add it <coughs> from my memory, <coughs> which is that they described the, uh, the, this experience as being like uh, somebody placing their hand on top of your head. There's like a slight pressure on top of the head. Was that here in the reading? I, uh, um, that there's like this very faint pressure that, that starts on the top of the head and it becomes gradually more and more pronounced as the suppleness gets stronger. And uh, then at, at some point the pressure dissolves and there's just the feeling of workability. Uh, let's see, the signs are the bliss of physical and mental suppleness, the uh, clear appearances, such as the visibility of subtle particles. Now, I know you guys can see subtle particles all the time because you have a microscope and you have magnifying glasses and things like that. But in the old days, they couldn't see subtle particles that well. And in case you're believing what I'm saying there, I should tell you that that was a joke and that subtle particles are the atoms that make up matter. And they, the, the idea traditionally is that when you really achieve shamatha, you gain some sense of supernormal capabilities. And one of them is the ability to see the structure of matter. We have no concepts, none of the 10 types of concepts, the five sense objects and uh, the three times and the two genders. Those are, those are the 10 conceptual designations, interestingly. As if your mind had merged with space, and due to this, there's no feeling of the body during the absorption, and mind is merged with space. Arising from this, one feels as if the body had suddenly reappeared. Maybe you get little glimpses of this sort of thing, of like sort of forgetting about your body while you're meditating, and then you move, and it's like, oh, okay. This is the foundation of all the concentrations taught in all the sutras and tantras, and it suppresses all sufferings and afflictions. This ultimate shamatha, the attainment of suppleness, is the foundation for everything. Just like a fertile field is the ground for the desired crop, it has the power to suppress, pacify all evident suffering and afflictions. Note, he, said, he doesn't say eliminate them. Only Vipassana can eliminate them. Uh, but furthermore, the realization of the genuine suchness or selflessness, just as it is, depends solely on this phase of absorption. <clears throat> so uh, there's big debate in the tradition of like, what stage of shamatha do you need to accomplish in order to genuinely experience suchness and selflessness, which we're not going to get into because we're focused on uh, practicalities, but it is something to consider. Um, finally, he says, a mind not resting in equipoise is not a good thing. And uh, the Buddha has said that by resting in equipoise, poise, not pose, the genuine will be known just as it is. So definitely something you want to like try to check out if you can. I encourage you. Not that I've any, ever been anywhere near it, but I've read a lot about it and it sounds really good. So, in the effort to continue, in the continuing effort to get people to smile a little bit tonight, I'm going to skip ahead and jump into the trapping the monkey 
chapter. I'm going to skip around a little bit. Uh, fortunately, I don't have page numbers, but uh, Trapping the Monkey from the Teacup and the Skull Cup, one of the more recent books that Rimsha has produced from the grave. And uh, he talks about um, Dhyana, which is the uh, Sanskrit term for jnana in Pali. You've probably seen uh, J-H-A-N-A. Uh, oh, and actually at this point I'll shift here. I wanted to show you this uh, little chart that I put together. A buddy of mine and I put together at one point probably 10 years ago. Guy named Greg Zwalen. Some of you know him, I think, knew him. So uh, I think it'd be helpful for you to become a little bit familiar with some of the major terms. And this has a lot of terms on it. So I'm gonna try to point out just the, the really important ones and uh, the different languages. So when you see these come up, you have a little bit of uh, facility and identifying you know, uh, the process of labeling, matching this and that, which uh, is a helpful thing to uh, become accomplished in, in order to go beyond labeling at some point. You gotta start with the labeling. So comma biting in English is shamata. Samata, actually in Pali, there's no H, the little, thing on top of the S implies an H, shamata, and in Tibetan it's shine. It's not shiny, but it's shine. <laughs> it should be like, I should fix this, there should be like a little dash there indicating, you know, they're both uh, monosyllabic sort of things, and so you got to split the syllables. Insight, or clear scene is vipassana in Pali, and you've, I'm sure, have heard of, you know, vipassana meditation, very popular in the United States of America. And there's vipassana, and in Tibetan, lakchong. And uh, many people have struggled with, like, how do you pronounce L-H? And it's just like you, you sort of... Uh, uh, aspirate the L if that means anything to you. Hlock. You actually you actually pronounce it H L. You go hlock tong. Anyway, it's not a big deal. Mindfulness is sati in Pali and smriti in Sanskrit, and then trenpa or drenpa in Tibetan. And again, I won't do all of these, but. Uh, Awareness, clear comprehension is the traditional translations for um, this term. Sampajana in Pali and Sanskrit samprajanya. And you saw Rimshe refer to this in one of the readings tonight. And then in Tibetan it's Sheshen. Sheshen, sorry. And then uh, lastly, vigilance or heedfulness, uh, the conscientiousness that we saw last time when I went through the three main qualities, which are the mindfulness, the awareness, and the heedfulness. Uh, in Pali, apamada, and uh, in Sanskrit, apramada. And then, now Rimshe, what we looked at had Pak with a P, P-A-K-Y-O, and it's a little bit bizarre, but in uh, Tibetan, P and B are related, and they're sort of interchangeable. And uh, you probably have seen this term, satipatthana, 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 sorry, satipatthana, the A, the long A is there, 
the foundation of mindfulness and that's the sanskrit for it the pali the name of that sutra is very famous the satipatthana sutra and let's see and then we have the term that made me remember this chart was absorption or concentration in pali is jhana and in sanskrit is dhyana and in tibetan it's samten Derek, can you explain under the tibetan the parentheticals versus uh, oh yeah thank you that's i uh, should uh so first you have what is attempting to be a what's called a phonetic spelling meaning you should be able to pronounce it as you see it and then in uh, in parentheses you have the transliteration of actually how it's spelled in tibetan and, and uh, tibetan is a very odd language there's a lot of uh, silent consonants and there's a lot of uh vowels that get pronounced differently when they're combined with different consonants so it's very hard to read the tibetan so like you know g z h g is uh, sort of incomprehensible in english but it's actually pronounced jokpa they put it here z they took out the h it's really jokpa thank you thank you for asking and so instead of like skom skom it's just gompa and this one is good instead of dba uh, <laughs> it's che anyway enough of that okay so we have diana and he's talking about uh diana comes first and samadhi comes later so he's, he's differentiating between absorption and uh, samadhi which is not that uh, important particularly but anyway um this is a very interesting statement right at the beginning it says according to the buddhist tradition when we talk about meditation we're not referring to meditating upon something or entering into a particular state it's like really after all this time we're not meditating on something you told me i'm supposed to meditate on the breath so i guess i missed this reading early on the book wasn't actually published when i started but anyway meditation is about training the mind without using any technique it's a process of training the training is the goal as well as the path it's very it's gradual slow but very definite at the same time and it highlights the sense of simplicity uh at the beginner's level there's training your mind the mind is a crazy monkey which leaps about it's restless paranoid and so the training is a way to catch the monkey to begin with as the starting point and this is shamatha hoshine in tibetan the development of peace uh we're not talking about cultivating a peaceful state as such you know it was not sometimes if you say cultivating peace people get the notion of like suppressing anything going on and instead it's about uh appreciating simplicity of whatever is occurring and he says if we try to rush towards the monkey to catch you know if we try to catch the mind by chasing it that exaggerates the monkey's paranoia and it becomes impossible to catch so if you try to catch your mind and hold it the mind doesn't respond well usually to that so you have to catch the mind monkey with a camouflage trap with earth that is seemingly still and that hopefully the monkey will step on it fall in 
And so like the trap, the practice of developing peace is one of imitating stillness. It says that the earth on top of the trap is imitating solid earth. And here we're, um, we imitate stillness. Have your body, speech, and mind as the starting point and use your breath, your eyes, and the movement of your body as a way of camouflaging yourself in stillness. It doesn't mean you have to stop moving or breathing. Um, another way to camouflage to go along with the stillness. Uh, sorry, to go along with the rhythm of the flow of the breath and the thoughts and everything. So that stillness pretends to be movement at the same time. Uh, which is sort of an obscure way of talking about um, meditating on the flow of thoughts, which we, is not commonly done. Instead of, uh, let's see, let's skip this. The main thing uh, at the beginning of practice is to focus on precision. And we've been through this. So, we, you know, we've been through shamatha. So I'm going to skip through this. Um, you don't like become absorbed in things. So he has this way of talking about, which you'll see repeated, that shamatha is to touch the verge of things. He talks about the breath later. We're talking about touching the verge of the breath, just pinpoint the verge of activities, which tends to bring a very strange or unfamiliar form of slowness or stillness somehow that's not deliberate. If you're trying to hold onto awareness very hard, then things become rigid rather than slow and peaceful. So in, in this case, the practice is just touching the verge of awareness, which brings a sense of slowness and peacefulness. And one of the reasons for including this reading is that he's, uh, I'm trying to show that he skips around in his use of terms. And I think there's a tendency that's developed over time in the presentation of uh, Shamatan Vipassana in our tradition, where we fixated on mindfulness as being shamatha and vipassana as being awareness. And I'd like to sort of mess with that uh, belief. We'll look at it where it came, comes from, and then we'll look at uh, some challenging readings about that. Eric? Yes, sir. Eric, when, uh, when you're working with the, the problems that come up in antidotes and that, is that Chamata or is that Vipassana? It almost seems like that's Vipassana, trying to figure out exactly where your mind is. It, it, it has a Vipassana element in that, yes, you're trying to figure out like where your mind is, like what uh, technique is going to work, how to apply the technique, what the technique is. And it takes that, requires that, that intelligence. Uh, but, but that intelligence is traditionally captured in Shamatha as being the uh, alertness, the awareness, the um, clear comprehension of uh, Shamatha. That's that factor in Sanskrit of Samprajanya. And we saw that in one of the readings a couple of weeks ago, or last week, in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra, where the refrain is uh, the monk sits. Um, ardently with clear comprehension and mindful following the breath or 
focusing on the body or the feelings or whatever. Mm. Just, just some interesting little tidbits. You know, how long should you sit? It's the only place in his published writings I've ever seen him state a, an exact amount that you're supposed to sit. <laughs> and it's also interesting that nobody ever like repeats this. Like if you ask, you know, how long should we sit? No, I've never seen anybody say, well, the standard is 40 minutes, but he does say that for what it's worth. Uh, he also introduces this idea of mixing mind with space that I talked about before. And we'll see this as sort of a recurring theme and uh, sort of one of the key themes in terms of transition from Shama to, to Vipassana. And uh, some interesting stuff about sense of generosity, not being paranoid in terms of breathing out versus focusing on the in-breath. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. This uh, this part seems to to me to go back to that rigidity aspect. You know that the rigidity that we normally experience is kind of a way of armoring ourselves and protecting ourselves. <clears throat> and suppleness would be letting go of that and a sense of openness that he's describing here? No? Yeah, very much the the uh, the uh, focus on the out-breath is very much part, uh, part of the reason for doing that is that it goes against that rigidity, that it okay. loosens up the rigidity. We have a basic physical and mental rigidity of pulling in and, and sort of protecting the inner space, the inner, the uh, inner, being the body and the inner uh, mentally being our mind or psychology. Mm. Yes. So the, the out breath is starting to let go and open ourselves to the environment and not uh, be so rigid. Um, let's see, letting go, um, imitate the notion of egolessness by going out into space and the in breath is just a gap. And so this is called mixing mind with space. Um, let's see. So then I want to shift back to the, uh, this guy here competing with our projections. No, I'm sorry. This guy here. Uh, cool boredom. It's a really cool little chapter from uh, a book called Mindfulness in Action. And uh, he talks about um, the basic methodology or, uh, or the, the basic energy or strategy of the physical and mental rigidity is to conceal gaps in our mind and body. He describes them as that little awkward silence around the, the dinner table. And uh, you fill it in with fluff. You know, we're just afraid of, of having uh, silence. And uh, so we're afraid of not having something to occupy ourselves with. So there's this constant uh, sense of um, preoccupation that we generally all engage in all of the time. And the purpose of meditation is to experience the gaps 
in that effort to maintain a continual preoccupation for the mind. And uh, one of the ways of getting to experience the gaps is first to notice the preoccupation. And we'll come to that, the portable stage set. But ideally in meditation, by doing nothing essentially, you know, and he's very explicit that the technique is a facade. We do nothing essentially and we'll see what that brings. Discomfort or relief whatever the case may be. You know, most people, if you ask them to do nothing, they sort of freak out, right? Particularly if you're in like formal, like a work situation, you know, like Michael Carroll tells the wonderful story, you know, of introducing uh, mindfulness to the executives, you know, and like he like gaps them out for 60 seconds and they're all like freaking out, you know, and they are like, by the end of it, they're like ready to kill him. Anyway, it's because it was him and the way he looks, obviously, has nothing to do with mindfulness. Um, the question arises, what are you meditating on? In this approach, meditation has no object. You do work with your body, your thoughts, and your breath, but that's different than concentrating. So we're not concentrating on anything. We're being mindful. Distinguishing that. You're not meditating upon anything. You're simply being present in a simple way. Simple, simple, simple. And we work with what's available, our mind, our body, and so forth, and our breath, so we're alive. Um, and let's see, at the beginning, the technique may be somewhat fascinating when you finally sort of get the technique, but it quickly becomes boring. You get tired of sitting and breathing, doing nothing again and again, and you feel like a fool, awkward. It's so uninteresting, and you resent having done this to yourself. It, so this, these are sign of like signs of genuine meditation practice. When you get bored, when you feel silly, and like nothing's happening, isn't something supposed to happen? Tracking time. When when. When will something happen? And this provokes all the material to come up to past experiences, memories, emotions, and so forth. And we all write our autobiography. And maybe some of us will have that published if we get really carried away. We go on vacation and so forth. Um, On the other hand, our sympathy towards ourselves expands. We begin to appreciate and enjoy simply being with ourselves. When we um, uh, get over the sort of shock of seeing what our mind does when it's by itself, when we leave our mind to itself, our mind, you know, freaks out and drums up all this stuff. And, and gradually, as we get bored by that, the habitual quality of that, we begin to detach from it and we develop some sympathy for it and uh, boredom. He says this type of boredom is different than the normal experience of boredom because behind the boredom or even within it, you feel something refreshing, cool boredom. You're bored to death or to tears, but it's no longer claustrophobic. You're like suspended in space and there's nothing to do. 
nothing you can do. It's cooling, refreshing, like the water from a mountain stream. That would be nice to experience someday. I look forward to that. I would like to have bliss. Yeah, that's that's the first sign of bliss, right? Okay, I'll look for that. Yeah, blissful boredom. Again, uh, meditation is uh, a method of establishing a relationship with yourself. That's the aim of meditation. There are various techniques. So here we have a presentation of the culmination of shamatha. Um, am I in the right place? No, I'm in the wrong. It's not not this one. Here's more about uh, the uh, development of boredom. Where are you? I, I lost your feet. I'm kind of going by the. Yeah, sorry. I'm on the excerpt on Shamata from okay. competing with our projections, which was, I think, the second reading right after Cool Boredom. Okay, found it. Uh, let's see. Neurosis is the inability to face the truth of the truth of what our mind is like. And. Uh, We think there's going to be some secret teaching, some semi-magical method that we can't expose ourselves just by doing something simple like breathing or sitting and doing nothing. But strangely enough, the simpler the technique, the greater the effects are produced. So we think that there must be something more to meditation than just the process of seeing the compulsive nature of our being. And that is the most magical secret teaching there is. And this is Shamatha, dwelling in peace. And uh, the technique is specially designed to produce exquisite boredom. What a cruel person he is. <laughs> it's not particularly designed to solve problems. It's just boring to wash one's breath and sit and do nothing. So in this case, we relate to the boredom, the first message of the non-existence of ego. We begin to, we, we see a little glimpse of absence of meanness. You feel like you're in exile. So I found this description of uh, his way of describing the feeling of this uh, growing experience of uh, boredom, which turns into um, loneliness and egolessness. Uh, like you're in exile. You've been exiled. You've had all these schemes going on, but now you're in a foreign country and you can't do shit. And uh, all of the stuff that you're dreaming up has no place in boredom, which is the starting point of realizing egolessness, which is the point of Vipassana meditation. Within that, at some point, one uh, entertains oneself. So first, we, we revolt against the boredom. When we hit real true boredom and we drum up all sorts of stuff, we saw that before. And the same thing as in the last talk, a little bit of a repetition. I'm sorry about that. And uh, so shamans is very important. Okay, 
So I think we, we got to, that down. It's getting a little boring, this boredom, boredom stuff. So let's move on to something more exciting. Here we go, mindfulness and awareness. So the two qualities of the three, he focuses on our mindfulness and awareness. And this wonderful little chapter from The Myth of Freedom, one of his earliest books. Meditation is working with our speed, our busyness. Mind, uh, provides the ground in which this restlessness might function, might have room to, rest, to be restless and might relax. This notion of how we train the mind not by fighting against the mind and trying to hold the mind, but by letting the, the mind wear itself out. And that's the process of experiencing the boredom. First, the hot boredom, where we're, we're frustrated, and that drums up all the entertainment. And then finally, we become bored of the entertainment and we experience cool boredom. We're not trying to produce a hypnotic state. We've seen this before. Um, if we provide enough room for restlessness so it might function within, within the space, then the energy ceases to be restless because it can trust itself fundamentally. There's nowhere for it to go, basically. The meditation is giving a huge, luscious meadow to a restless cow. The cow might be restless for a while in a huge meadow, but at some stage, the restlessness becomes irrelevant and the cow eats and eats and eats and relaxes and falls asleep. So the monkey mind, the cow in this story, falls asleep and we're left there in cool boredom. Acknowledging the restlessness, identifying it with it, working with it requires mindfulness. Whereas the big luscious meadow, the big space for the restless cow requires awareness, focused attention, mindfulness, panoramic, open monitoring is awareness. So mindfulness and awareness complement each other. Mindfulness is the process of relating with individual situations directly, precisely, and definitely. Specific experiences, you communicate, uh, sorry, there's this, there's that. Mindfulness is like a microscope. And it just to clearly present what's there, doesn't refer to the past or future. Awareness, on the other hand, is seeing the discovery of mindfulness. It gives this analogy of finding a flower later, I guess. Um, awareness is another step towards choicelessness in situations. Now, here's the, uh, the, the zinger, I guess you call it. Awareness, this word for awareness in uh, Sanskrit is smriti. Everybody else in the world translates Smriti as mindfulness. And so he suddenly switched the whole scheme around. Awareness is mindfulness, it's shamatha. So, you know, this, uh, I'm trying to mix, I'm trying to, you know, mix up the fixation of thinking that mindfulness is, is shamatha and awareness is Vipassana. And he's very helpful. He's helping me out a lot. Recollection in the sense of remembering, the, not in the sense of remembering the past, but in the sense of recognizing the product of mindfulness. In another place, he says, it's recollecting the present. 
Mindfulness is the topic or the terms or the words and awareness of the grammar. So he gives a number of analogies for how these relate to each other. And uh, we experience mindfulness, precision, what do I do? And awareness is we don't really have to do anything, we can leave it. It gives us an analogy of the flower in the jungle. So they work together to bring acceptance of living situations. We work out the shoe of samsara by walking on it through the practice of meditation. Nice analogy there. So the culmination of shamatha. Uh, let's skip to this one, deeper perception. Then we go beyond that a little bit. So here he's talking about uh, sort of our user, usual way of focusing on sense perception. On sense perceptions. Then we go a little beyond that. Along with those perceptions that happen to us, the cognizing faculties that we possess, there's a deeper perception taking place. Full perception, fresh experience, smelling and so forth are not only uh, as one of our sense faculties, but experiences of clarity. We begin to experience some clarity that can govern all those situations. Uh, ordinary experiences could be regarded as sometimes having a clouding effect. We, we become sort of uh, confused in experience often because there's so much going on and there's a tendency to lose the individuality of specific things that we experience. Here we're going beyond that, beyond ordinary perception. There's super sound, smell, super feeling. This, can ex this kind of perception can only be experienced by training ourselves in the depths of Hinayana through shamatha practice, which clears out the cloudiness and brings about the precision and sharpness of the perceptions. We start by developing the precision of our breath going in and out in shamatha practice or the movement of our heel, soul, toe, and walking meditation. And that brings out precision that goes beyond the cloudiness of our sense perceptions. And meditation practice brings out the supernatural, if I may use that word, not sort of uh, ghosts, but supernatural. You feel more. Uh, directly and clearly you experience more directly and clearly better. Your trauma to the best cognition begins to arise in your system and elevate your sense of existence. And um, this continues from the Hinayana through the, through the Vajrayana. And you find yourself through this shamatha, you finally begin to see like what's really going on in your mind and your world so clearly. This is not necessarily Vipassana, but you begin to experience um, our thoughts and our concepts and our emotions and our sense perceptions with hyper clarity through shamatha practice. Transition. Okay. Uh, he talks again, so I'm going to transition from Shamatha to Vipassana, an excerpt from continuing your confusion and the path is the goal. And uh, 
he references the mixing of mind with space again and notes this as a sense of uh, combining shamatha vipassana and that this is an important part of, the, of our development mindfulness becomes awareness mindfulness is taking an interest in precision and the simplicity and uh, the experience of all kinds of things and awareness is experiencing acknowledging the totality and awareness has been described as the first experience of egolessness and this awareness is lakton vipassana and he, he just he glosses he gives the traditional gloss which means explanation of the term lakton or vipassana and the, the uh, traditional gloss is that it's the knowledge that realizes egolessness through awareness or the uh, knowledge of egolessness egoless awareness this is the first introduction to uh, the beginning of understanding egolessness awareness in this case of totality not one-sidedness we have no direction no bias when it's simply aware totally and completely but it also includes the precision of the mindfulness and the shamatha. So here he's affiliated awareness with Vipassana and uh, mindfulness with shamatha. This awareness brings egolessness because there's no object of awareness. So when we talk about um, panoramic awareness, mixing mind with space, it only has a quality of Vipassana if there's a tinge of egolessness, a tinge. He says there's no object of awareness. Um, so there's no sense of object and there's no sense of subject. And he talks about this in other places as radiation without a radiator. So you're aware of the whole thing completely, of you and other and the activities at the same time. Everything is open. So first he says there's no object of awareness. Then he says, you're aware of the whole thing completely of you and the other. But uh, the implication is of, uh, as not separate. So there's a sense of non-duality. And then he gives the real uh, indication of Vipassana practice, of what Vipassana is about. He says, if you're a really smart cookie, you say, you might ask, who's being aware of the whole thing? So who's been meditating this whole time? By the way, who's been doing all this? It's the $64 question, one of his famous favorite phrases. The answer is nobody. Nobody's being aware of anything but itself. The razor blade cuts itself and so forth. That is the primitive logic of egolessness. That all there's that's going on is the activity and there's no actor. There's no ego. There's just things going on, fire burning, water flowing, senses perceiving, and there's nobody watching the senses. This, this is a little bit simplistic for yeah. some people. Yes, ma'am. I, I, for some reason, I guess this is going back to, uh, you know, the foundational schools, but for some reason that, that phrase, the razor blade cuts itself, seems to me it should say, the razor blade can't cut itself. <laughs> no? I mean, it's a strange analogy to me. <laughs> it, it is. 
it's uh, it, he's really saying the, the razor blade cuts by by you know it's like he's mixing metaphors here yeah yeah he's totally <laughs> mi- the sun shines by itself fire burns by itself water flows by itself nobody watch he's saying there's nobody else home there's like nobody holding yeah. the he's really saying there's nobody holding the razor blade directing there's nobody in control yeah. these phenomena just go on by themselves without us you know the whole situation is anonymous that's a great way of putting it anonymous I love that uh, let's see traditionally we have the term smriti upastana in Sanskrit the uh, cultivation or the foundation of mindfulness or satipatthana in Pali which means resting in one's intelligence interesting way of translating that it's the same as awareness again mindfulness smriti being awareness doesn't mean the person is practicing Vipassana meditation gives up his or her shamatha techniques of mindfulness of the breath. Simply that we, uh, the meditator simply relates with that discipline in a more expansive way. So he's sort of mapping, uh, uh, sort of finger painting what Vipassana is sort of all over the map. On the one hand, it's egoless awareness. On the other hand, it's it's just um, uh, panoramic awareness. On the other hand, it's just a totality, experiencing the totality, experiencing things in an expansive way. Is that with uh, when you're on the cushion? Because it strikes me that um, I mean, shamatha is always a little bit of a battle to bring yourself back you know and but the passion with this expansive view um seems to you want to be off the cushion because if not are you looking at you know your emotions or a memory of something in a a way that it doesn't belong to you or you're still able to see it you still want to try to investigate it but just not take any personal stake yeah well um that that quality of the the larger sense of awareness that you're describing as uh, not having a personal stake in things is the um, hallmark of that of samprajanya of that uh, um, clear comprehension quality of just seeing things in the larger context without it being in relation to me all the time and uh, that is traditionally very uh, important part of shamatha practice on the cushion however we tend there's a tendency to experience that part more in post meditation and so you'll see, there's an, uh, an indication in the readings today and then you'll see in the future that he affiliates vipassana sometimes with post meditation in a confusing way but he's pointing out that the the uh, the post meditation state forces us to to have a larger sphere of awareness, and he's affiliating that larger sphere of awareness with vipassana. Uh, but he so it's important to see that he's finger painting and he's 
and in finger painting, he's mushing around or messing around terms and he's messing around concepts and he's continually trying to uh, give his students the feeling for the progression through the meditation practice. And uh, I think it's less important to him actually the specific, you know, like the technicalities of of Vipassana as opposed to Shamatha, because he describes it so differently in different places and and uh, flips around the affiliation with the terms. Uh, let's see. If you relate with every move you make in your sitting practice, take note of every detail and so forth. There's no room for anything at all. So he's talking about the, the sort of more traditional version of mindfulness. It's, it's like keeping track of everything incessantly. And that lacks the, the, uh, the larger awareness that he's trying to push us towards. However, every area is taken over with in Vipassana practice. There's no one to practice and nothing to practice. You, no you actually exists. If you think oh, I'm practicing, you really have no one there to relate to. There's no one to talk to. Um, uh, you can still say the empty words, but they're like, you, you can say I'm practicing, but they're like empty words. So it's given a first a little uh, indication of what emptiness, or, sorry, egolessness is like. And he uses this analogy of the lion. And when the lion is dead. The lion is the king of the jungle and nobody will go near the lion. But when they're dead, the lion's corpse remains lying in the jungle and other animals are frightened of it, even though they're, it's, he's dead. They're still frightened of the, of the appearance of a lion. So the only ones that can destroy it are the worms who crawl up from underneath. They don't see it from the outside. They eat through it. So finally it disintegrates on the ground. And he compares this to awareness. So awareness like disintegrates the ego from the inside without seeing the whole, like without confronting it head on. Very cool analogy for how uh, awareness leads to Vipassana and uh, egolessness. So but, uh, just a, uh, a little chapter on the different projections that get cranked up when we... Um, <clears throat> when we develop our ego in the uh, process of maturing, becoming a, a mature human being in society and uh, the experience of seeing that through meditation practice. And he, he uses this as a, a, a way to introduce a Pashna experience. He talks about the different types of backgrounds we operate with in our lives and uh, that we carry around with us all the time. We create an, these backgrounds in our mind in every situation. When we enter someone's room, we sit by ourselves or we meet someone. This kind of background is partially made up of the sense of basic space that we carry around with us. It's also colored by our particular mood of the moment. And the title is the portable stage set, the theater of me that happens wherever I go. I was thinking of our Zoom our little Zoom squares and right. <laughs> our background. That's our, yeah, that's our little theater, our little personal theater. Uh, let's see. 
like a little, it's a kind of portable stage set that we carry around with us that enables us to operate as individuals. We constantly produce a display of theatrical scene. For each situation, we create the appropriate backdrop and the appropriate lighting, actors, mainly ourselves. And uh, we, we carry on this play, this theatrical game all the time, and we're constantly using our antennae so to speak, to feel out the effect that we're having on our world. So he's describing becoming hyper-aware of the ego and the projection of ego in our world. In Vipassana, we deal with the background of portable theater. Whether we have a big or small deal, there's always some deal happening. And Vipassana works with that deal, big or small, clever or whatever. And in Vipassana, instead of keeping very busy, continuing to maintain the projection of your theater, the theatrical stage set, you change your attitude so there's a sense of questioning the production of the background, the production of the theater, the stage set, why we do it, whether we have to do it or maybe not have to do it. So there's this level of inquiry an experiential sense of inquiry where we're beginning to see the projection that we carry around all the time and make all the time. So we're, we're beginning to see our ego. So Vipassana in the sense of um, the, the insight that experiences our egolessness, the, the knowledge of egoless insight begins with seeing the ego. You've got to see the ego if you want to see the absence of ego. So in Vipassana, you as the practitioner experience the game you're playing and setting up your theater. New way of dealing with the whole thing without it being a game. The game quality begins to fall apart, the facade. And this is through the sitting practice of meditation. And when you sit, you don't sit for the purpose of, you know, enhancing your display, hopefully, which would be spiritual materialism. But you relate with the radiation that you're creating. You notice your your aura, <laughs> you know, your personal ego aura. And uh, before you begin sitting, this radiation was created purely to impress or overpower your audience. But now the situation is reversed and you experience your own radiation face to face rather than playing with it in order to impress. You have no audience when you sit. You're your own audience. So your projection begins to project back on you. and You begin to see it very vividly and uh, maybe sometimes uncomfortably. Uh, you can still make little tricks. You can make still, you know, can sort of deceive yourself with it. But... Uh, so you've had the basic training of shamatha, and from there you expand. Shamatha is essential. Without that, you can't experience vipassana. Uh, but with that, the practitioner can begin to expand the meaning of mindfulness so that it becomes awareness. Mindfulness is being fully there, and awareness is a total sensing. So here we see uh, he's sort of trying, starting to standardize mindfulness as shamatha, vipassana as awareness. In awareness, all thing, all happenings are seen at once. This is called panoramic vision. Having a sense of the entire radiation that we create. We possess a certain mannerism, whatever that's reflected outward. And when we sit, we see that the thought process quality of this. You develop a sense of appreciation of the things around you. Not one by one, but totally. You see the full projection. Sorry. Uh, it's like light radiating from a flame or a light bulb that expands outward. 
However, we find the radiation has no radiator. So it's very important in your experience of panoramic awareness that you start to look at where's the radiator and notice that there's no radiator. If you don't notice the absence of radiator, then it doesn't become Vipassana. If you look into who is doing all these tricks, producing the display radiation, there's nobody, even the idea of somebody doesn't exist. There's a pure sense of openness. At this point, we're just only introducing Vipassana. So this affiliation of shamatha with mindfulness and Vipassana with awareness is maybe just the introduction, maybe the transitional, the way to transition from shamatha into Vipassana is to understand awareness as the vanguard, as he likes to call these things. The term he likes to use, vanguard. I never knew that term until I started reading him. Later, more will go into more detail, which is questionable. But uh, what is necessary to understand now is that the Vipassana experience does not proceed to the level of a game, but remains purely at the level of experience, the living experience of awareness. Now, this parenthetical, who knows if he says it would be interesting to know if he said that or if the editors had, uh, had added that. Awareness, in this case, is not awareness of self, but of other. The difference between the two is that you're, if you're aware of yourself, it is awareness of yourself, being aware of yourself, aware of yourself, and so forth, endlessly. There's some kind of incense, incest, sorry, not incense, sense, incest taking place where if you're just being aware simply it's a gesture of it's a openness a welcoming gesture that seems to be the basic approach or the policy in the handbook of the Pashna, the employee handbook uh, so we're running a little bit low on time I'm going to sort of skip around now this talk was not was transcribed from uh, uh, DVDs that we got and it's not edited. You will, if you read it, you notice that it's very uh, different to see his uh, actual speech transcribed accurately and not edited. It's a little hard to understand, uh, which is obviously why they edited it. Because <laughs> um, so you begin to appreciate, you know, what the editors add. It's tremendous. Uh, let's see. So. Um, According to the are tradition, you, are you in talk four? I'm in talk four. That's right. Shamatha and Vipassana, the path of meditation seminar. That's one with a lot of words. <laughs> uh, Vipassana is regarded as further experience of egolessness and developing prajna, which means transcendent knowledge. Compared with the Shamatha, Vipassana is more concerned with dealing with one's inquisitive mind, taking full advantage of it exploring that, developing, and so fundamentally, finally, that sense of exploration. Bless you. <laughs> I'm going to take the uh, liberty of muting whoever that was. Let's see. Oh, I can't find it. Bless you, because I'm trying. <laughs> um, Exploration of one's mind becoming open and egolessness. Let's see. Um, I'm going to skip these parts. 
he's describing the process of going through shamatha, through intervipassana. And he finally comes to the experience of simplicity. We have our bodies, our breath, our mind, and we just deal with those very simply. And because of that, we begin to find a new dimension of experience known as Vipassana or Lakjong, development of insight, clear seeing, seeing things clearly, precisely, extremely. Um, a shift between Shine, Shamata, and Lakjong, Vipassana, or Vipassana, Shamata, is in the level of Shamata, there's a very specialized attention that's put in your practice. And just on the, and we just breathe, breathe very direct and simple, very narrow from that point of view. And in the case of awareness of a passionate, slightly extended version of openness, you find that there's a lot of room apart. So I'm going to sort of uh, edit his, his English as I read it, try to make it into sentence, real sentences. There's a lot of room apart from the object of concentration, the breath or your bodily sensations or whatever. There's a lot more room, a great deal more room um, so we're experiencing the environment as well as experiencing the object, the, the breathing. So we experience the environment, the panoramic awareness. According to the Buddha, uh, Lakchong or Vipassana is a state of clear scene of egolessness because we don't have to concentrate on our particular thing too heavy-handedly, our particular thing being the ego. But we begin to realize the environment around our practice. Uh, so you start with the breath, and you begin to experience the environment around you is also part of the breathing, part of your whole basic being. You begin to feel the space around you. The sense of beingness is extended at that level. And so there is also a state of awareness that we have our antenna sharpened constantly. We sharpen our antenna by extending our awareness into space. This is me talking, by the way, in case you're wondering. Uh, by, by trying to be aware of the absence of an object to be aware of, you refine your antenna, your perceptual capability. Then he describes this, he says, you begin to feel it if you sit and meditate very honestly and so forth. You find that somebody's watching behind your back, looking at your neck, examining you. Isn't that creepy? Somebody's like haunting you. It's like, what is going on here? The boogeyman is like behind you. Um, and you begin to feel that there's a, a heavy heaviness coming down to you. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the Xinjiang, the, the suppleness experience. Uh, that That's the completion of shamatha. You begin to feel your bodily sensations as if you're wearing a heavy coat or a turban and all kinds of tensions happen in the back of your neck, and your butt, your legs, and your arms feel awkward and your body feels more than there is at some point. But those are the vanguard of Vipassana. That there's something taking place around you apart from the object of concentration, which is the breath. There's something more that's taking place that's happening. An extended version is taking place. Vipassana is the seed or the beginning point of developing meditation and action. You can extend it to the uh, the rest of your life situation. Then he says, but you should be careful about this, you know. Don't fall into the trap of thinking, oh, I don't have time to meditate. I actually enjoy, you know, gardening and cooking. And, uh, yeah, my battery's low, so I got to plug in. Sorry for the hum. 
and uh, you know, so, sometimes people do this. Like people say, "Can I meditate on the subway and the train?" You know, while I'm doing other things, it's not really a good idea. It says that's pretty tricky. There's a lot of deception going on. So, um, so there's a term mindfulness applies to shamatha, which is being fully there, completely watchful. Then you have the term awareness, which applies to vipassana, second stage. So he's starting to standardize. Um, and he gives this example of driving down the highway that mindfulness, if you have too much focus on mindfulness, you, that looking at the, the steering wheel and watching how you're driving, the guy in front of you, the guy behind you, you might lose your exit because you haven't been aware of the larger situation. So the Vipassana is the larger awareness. Um, we need something more than that more than just adolescent level of being focused or careful. We need to be a much greater level, which is developing awareness. And he says in Tibet, there are two terms. One is trempa, which literally means recollection, memory, sharpness, like our mindfulness, trempa. So here he defines them as traditional. And there's another word, shenpa, sheshen, Tibet, shenpa, is knowing, and shen is as it is, to knowing things as they are. So that's the samprajnana, a sense of uh, perspective. And it's necessary to have both trenpa and shesha working together. And in particular, pay more attention to the shesha experience as you develop later on in your practice of meditation. So it's saying that we begin with the trenpa, the mindfulness, and gradually there's an expansion, expansion or development or progression towards shesha or um, samprajnana, the, the clear awareness clear comprehension, the clarity of awareness. But I wouldn't suggest you shift at this point on your own. Uh, let's take to the shamatha first for now. Uh, but at some point you might find that there's something happening to you. There's a sense of expansion, greater awareness, and that's possible and it should happen. And uh, that would happen uh, if, if you do the technique faithfully. So shesha, Knowing as it is, knowing as they are, which sharpens our antenna, uh, that sense of expansion taking place. So it's very much affiliating Shesha with Vipassana. Uh, and he's, uh, he's uh, given this analogy of when you rent a car at first, like you, you try to get the feel of the car, it's different than your car, and then, then gradually you get the feel for the whole car, how big it is, and so forth. That's that larger. Uh, so you get instant knowledge of awareness rather than just the mindfulness. You start with the mindfulness, checking out the rental car, and then you have the larger awareness of how to manage it. As a sense of radiation, feelings extending, and also the working situation becomes appropriate and applicable. That working situation to our everyday running situation, meaning that that type of mental cognitive faculty really is what extends into post meditation. Our daily life is the shashan, the clear comprehension, the awareness, more than the, the mindfulness. Really. So the question of Vipassana at this point is shashan, or the awareness experience. So right there, he's affiliating Vipassana with shashan, which is basically what he's been doing the whole time when he's describing panoramic awareness. Panoramic awareness is really 
the description or the translation or the explanation of Sheshen. And he's been merging Sheshen and Vipassana. And here you see it in black and white. Um, it's an interesting way of describing it. Uh, let's see, when you have that sense of awareness experience taking place, you begin to find a new discovery. It's not, which is that it's not new, that experience, that operating necessarily, but you really don't exist particularly. So it's a sort of a new way of experiencing as opposed to experiencing something new. And that it, it, it is that is operating, the relationship vibration rather than you are conducting. So that idea of things happening without it, an actor or somebody being in control, some ego. So you sense a sense of hollowness, begin to feel a sense of hollowness, and uh, at the same time a sense of being, and very careful sense of uh, what's appropriate and real at the same time. So this combined sense of hollowness or egolessness, but at the same time with sort of sense of appreciation and conscientiousness. Nevertheless, a sense of hollowness. Um, continuing more with the analogy of driving. The experience of a postulate is a sense of dignity, a sense of completion, of knowingness, somewhat familiarity. Dignity maybe in the sense of like uh, a fundamental sense of well-being, maybe decorum of sort of like what's appropriate. A sense of familiarity begins to arise. So you know the feeling of things even if the particulars are different. Uh, one of the interesting points about Vipassana is the sense of exertion, sense of discipline. It's not so much yours, but it's sort of self-existing experience. It's, it's not like early on in, in the practice we have to sort of apply diligence and exertion, like and, and sort of with an effort. Here is sort of describing effortless exertion. And... Um, So that seems to be the basic point, meaning what the way he's described it, the student should know about Vipassana. Before you can access it, one should get into shaman thoroughly and uh, faithful to your technique and a sense of fearlessness and cutting through your boredom. Now, I don't think he means cutting through boredom. I think it's a sense of cutting through experiencing your boredom, cutting your preoccupation. Let's see. So I think we should end at this point. So that's the purpose of Vipassana, to bring down to ourselves, bring us down to the ground, and uh, we get even a more down-to-earth level of experience. Excuse me one second.
was two minutes instead of one minute. <laughs> Just to finish this up, go a little bit more longer with the, the background noise I can remove now, I think. Uh, is there any difference between technique? As far as technique is concerned, it's pretty much the same, but in Vipassana, you watch the boundaries more than the, than the point or the center of concentration, the boundary of feeling around you. You're not particularly working on your breath specifically, but on the boundary around the breath, sense of expansion taking place, radiation. And it's a question, simply a question of attitude. You see, the point is that there's literal teaching, literal, direct, simple teachings. Uh, the meaning of the literal, simple teaching begins to develop. And then you begin to expand yourself greater and greater, more and more wider, whatever that means. That uh, I think he's, he's, he's referring to the experience of initially learning the Dharma and taking it very literally and focusing on the literal meaning and gradually beginning to understand the larger implied meaning of the Dharma. That's the more traditional way that Vipassana, uh, the sort of result of Vipassana is described. One begins to get a sense of uh, how to use your intellect subconsciously and imagination at the same time subconsciously as well. So we begin to touch into the world of our subconscious through this development of Shamatha and Vipassana. And then we attain enlightenment where you get everything. <laughs> um, and then somebody asked, well, how do we do this? Do we, uh, does one just move in that direction or does one need to push in some way? Do we need to like do something different? This is the endless question. It's like, is the technique different? How do we get to Vipassana from Shamatha? What, what, you know, what's this, the secret uh, password? It's necessary to have somebody to check your practice. So he encourages the, the individual one-on-one -on -one working with a meditation instructor. But at the same time, you could develop your own intelligence. It's that when you begin to feel it, you have to expand yourself rather than your practice is strictly at the level of being too faithful. So he's saying there's a certain point where um, we feel this option of expanding in terms of uh, sort of opening up our frame of reference and loosening up the, the strictness of the technique. You begin to feel slightly differently than you can if expand yourself. So we, can, we begin to feel a confidence in our ability to stay present without having to constantly cut thoughts and come back to some safe place of the breath as like a refuge from thought. At that level, if you examine yourself in your particular style of experience, you begin to find that um, you're actually doing Vipassana experience already in terms of how he's described it as the expansion of uh, the mind into space, panoramic awareness, and so forth. You have transcended the shamatha experience in any case. So one has to take that kind of uh, he's, he's like saying, you have to take that kind of momentum. It's like growing up. When you grow up, there's a, a ceremony like a birthday, but, uh, you know, that's a fiction. And uh, um, it's similar in meditation. There's no, like, one point where you graduate from shamatha to, to Vipassana. But it's more like you find yourself 
in a more Vipassana type of experience, having naturally um, loosened up into it. Maybe somebody asks about how does it relate to uh, Hinayana and Vajrayana, and then uh, we'll repeat this last talk next week. Eric? Comments? Questions? I, I, I had a question. Suggestions? Take a few minutes to go go over any thoughts, comments, anyone? I, I just had a question. Did, did, did he ever um, equate Vipassana with analytical Maybe. meditation? Why not coming through? Derek? Cool. We're all good then. No, Derek? Totally clear. No question. Oh, Henrietta and Cynthia. <laughs> can, Sorry, you, can you hear me? Can you? I can uh, hear Henrietta, me. you're. I can't. Oh. I think. I, I turned my own sound off <laughs> somehow. We this, noticed. Sorry. Geez, this cord has a. Uh, did I, was I silent for the whole last thing as I read through that last section? No, 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 no. no. You were fine. You just couldn't hear Henrietta, who was trying to say something. <laughs> I just uh, wondered whether, I mean, Cynthia, if you want to go ahead, that's, that's fine with me. I, I just was wondering whether he ever, um, Rinpoche ever talked about Vipassana in terms of analytical meditation. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see that. We that's, will. That's okay. coming up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the big ones, yeah. So that's good. Thank you for asking that. Anything else? Cynthia? Anyone else? Uh, Mary Beth? <clears throat> Just sort of a question slash observation. Did I understand this correctly in Jamgun Control's presentation? that um, a sign of correct mental engagement is no concept of gender. That's right. <laughs> that you've given up the, the 10 conceptions. What were the 10 conceptions? The five senses, the three times, and the two genders. Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Genderless insight. We have so much... We have the so cultivation of genderless. So yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of work. Yeah, we certainly do. Yeah. Timelessness, genderlessness, and the, the, the conceptions of the senses. That's interesting. Five senses. Thank you for mentioning that, highlighting that. That was a cool one. So let's conclude. Uh, chanting. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regions wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Hey, so uh, just a little note about the force, the forthcoming classes is that um, 
there will be more of the traditional presentation of Vipassana. So there's a, well, uh, I keep forgetting to share the syllabus with you, but we'll, we'll go through Vipassana in quite detail, like four, four classes on Vipassana. So we'll go through it real slowly and uh, carefully. And uh, it'll, it, uh, it's a little bit more complicated. So I hope you'll bear with it because I think it's worth it. So thank you all very much. Great to see you. And I uh, hope to see you again soon. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Thank, so you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you.